The Ending in the Cupboard by Lynn Reed Banks. Chapter 14, The Missing Key. Omri's brothers were already sitting at the tea table when the two boys rushed in. Hi, what's for tea? Omri asked automatically. Gillen and Adil didn't answer. Adil had a funny smirk on his face. Omri hardly noticed. Let's make a sandwich and eat it upstairs, he suggested to Patrick. They slapped some peanut butter on bread, poured mugs of milk and hurried upstairs to Omri's room, whispering all the way. How long does it take? Only a few minutes. Can I see her? Wait till we get upstairs. Omri opened the door and stopped dead. The white medicine cupboard was gone. Where, where is it? gasped Patrick. Omri didn't say a word. He turned and rushed downstairs again with Patrick behind him. Okay, where have you hidden it? He shouted as soon as he burst into the kitchen. I don't know what you're referring to, said Adil loftily. Yes, you do. You've taken my cupboard. And supposing I did. It was only to teach you a lesson. You're always taking my things and hiding them. Then you'll see how funny it isn't. When did I take anything of yours? Tell me one thing in the last month. My football shorts, said Adil promptly. I never touched your stupid shorts. I already swore I hadn't. I had to miss my gains today because I didn't have them, and I got detention for it. So you can be grateful I'm only punishing you tit for tat and not bashing you in, said Adil with a maddening calm. Omri felt so furious he even wondered for a moment whether it was worth bashing Adil in. But Adil was enormous and it was hopeless. So after gazing at him for another moment with hate-filled eyes, Omri turned and dashed upstairs again, almost falling over Patrick on the way. What do we do? Look for it, of course. He was turning Adil's room upside down like a madman when Adil was slowly mounting the stairs in the direction of his homework, heard the racket and came running. He stood in the doorway looking at the shampoos of the pulled-out drawers, degutted cupboards and furniture pulled awry. You little swine, he howled and dived at Omri. Omri, sw- Omri fell to the ground with Adil on top. I'll tear everything you've got to pieces till you give it back to me. Omri shouted in jerks as Adil shook and pummeled him. Then cough up my shorts. I haven't got your stinking shorts, screamed Omri. Are these them? asked a small voice in the background. Adil and Omri stopped fighting. And Adil, sitting astride, twisted his neck to see. Patrick was just lifting a crumpled navy blue object from behind a radiator. Omri felt the anger go out of Adil. Oh, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. How did they get there? But Omri knew perfectly well how. Adil had hung them there to dry and they dropped off backward. Adil scrambled up looking distinctive, distinctly sheepish. He, had ev- he even helped Omri to his feet. Well, but you have hidden my things in the past, he mumbled. How was I to know? Can I have my cupboard now? Yeah, it's up in the attic. I piled a whole lot of stuff onto it. Omri and Patrick took the stairs to the attic two at a time. They found the cupboard quite quickly under a heap of bits and pieces, but Omri had carried it down to his room again before he made the fatal discovery. The key! The little twisted key with its red satin ribbon was missing. Once again, Omri ran into Adil's room to find Adil uncomplainingly putting things straight. What happened to the key? What key? There was a key in the cupboard door with a red ribbon. I didn't notice. They went out and closed the door. Omri was now feeling desperate. We've got to find it. It doesn't work without the key. They searched the attic till supper time. Never had Omri seen... Sorry. 
Never had Omri so clearly seen the point of all his mother's urgings to keep everything in its proper place. The attic was just a sort of glory hole, where they could play and leave a total mess, and that was what they always did, only clearing spaces when they needed them for a new layout or for some special game. And their way of clearing was to just shove things aside into even more chaotic heaps. Underneath the heaps were all the myriad little oddments that were small enough to filter through the bigger things. Marbles, wheels of matchbox cars, matchbox cards, bits of Lego, small tools, parachute men, cards and so on and so on. Plus all sorts of fragments that could have been almost anything. At first they just raked through everything. But after a while Omri realised that they would have to have they would have to clear up systematically. Otherwise, it was like the old saying about looking for a needle in a haystack. He found some boxes and they began sorting things into them. Lego here, parts of games there, water pistols, tricks and novelties in another. Bigger things they stacked neatly onto what his father rather bitterly called the shelves provided, which normally stood empty since everything was on the floor. In an amazingly short time, the floor was clear except for a few odd things they hadn't found homes for and a great deal of mud, dust and sand. Where did all this come from? asks Patrick. Oh, Gillen brought up boxes of it from the garden to make a desert scene, said Omri. Months ago. We might as well sweep it up. He looks around. Despite his anxiety about the key, he felt a certain pride. The room looked entirely different. There was a real playing space now. He went downstairs and fetched a broom, a dustpan and a soft brush. We'll have to do this carefully, he said. It'd be terrible if we threw it away with the sand. We could sieve it, suggested Patrick. That's a good idea, in the garden. They carried the sand out in a cardboard box and Omri borrowed his father's large garden sieve. Omri held it and Patrick spooned in the sand and earth with a troll, trowel. Several small treasures came to light and such such as a ten-pence piece, but no key. Omri was in despair. He and Patrick sat down on the lawn under a tree, and Omri took the two little men out of his pocket. Where, woman? Little Bear asks instantly. Never mind, woman. Where is the vittles? Asks the ever-hungry Boone grumpily. Omri and Patrick fed them some more chocolate, and with a deep sense of misery, Omri produced the plastic Indian woman from his pocket. Little Bear stopped chewing his chocolate. The moment he saw her, he gazed in rapture. It was obvious he was half in love with her already. He reached out a hand and tenderly touched her plastic hair. Make real, now, he breathed. I can't, said Omri. Why can't, asked Little Bear sharply. The magic's gone. Now Boone stopped eating too, and he and Little Bear exchanged a frightened look. You mean, you can't send us back? Asked Boone in an awe-stricken whisper. Whoops, I didn't whisper. Never? We got to live in a giant's land forever? It was clear that Little Bear had been explaining matters. Don't you like being with us? Asked Patrick. Well, I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings none, said Boone. But just think about how you'd feel if you was just, if you was as big to you as you are to me. Little Bear, asked Omri. Little Bear dragged his eyes away from the plastic figure and fixed them, like little light crumbs on, like little bright crumbs of black glass on Omri. Omri, good, he pronounced at last. 
But little bear, Indian brave, Indian chief. How be brave, how be chief with no other Indians. Omri opened his mouth. If he had not lost the key, he might have rashly offered to bring to life an entire tribe of Indians simply to keep little bear contented. Through his mind flashed the knowledge of what this meant. It wasn't the fun, the novelty, the magic that mattered any more. What mattered was that little bear should be happy. For that, he would take on almost anything. They all sat quietly on the lawn. There seemed nothing more to say. A movement near the back of the house caught Omri's eye. It was his mother, coming to hang up some wet clothes. He thought she moved as if she were tired and fed up. She stood for a moment on the back balcony, looking at the sky. Then she sighed and began pegging the clothes to the line. On impulse, Omri got up and went over to her. You, you haven't found anything of mine, have you? he asked. No, I don't think so. What have you lost? But Omri was too ashamed to admit he's lost, he'd lost the key she'd told him to be so careful of. Oh, nothing much, he said. He went back to Patrick, who was showing the men an ant. Boone was trying to pat his head, but it wasn't very responsive. Well, Omri said, we might as well make the best of things. Why not bring the horses out and give the fellows a ride? This cheered everyone up, and Omri ran up and brought the two horses down carefully in an empty box. Next, Patrick stamped about two square feet of the lawn, hard to give the horses a really good gallop. Quite a large black beetle alighted on the flattened part, and Little Bear shot it dead with an arrow. This cheered him up a bit more, though not much. While the horses grazed the fresh grass, he kept giving great lovesick sighs, and Omri knew he was thinking of the woman. Maybe you'd rather not stay the night now, Omri said to Patrick. I want to, said Patrick, if you don't mind. Omri felt too upset to care one way or the other. When they were called in to supper, he noticed that Adil was trying to be friendly, but Omri wouldn't speak to him. Afterward, Adil took him aside. What's up with you now? I'm trying to be nice. You got your silly old cupboard back? It's no good without the key. Well, I'm sorry. It must have dropped out on the way up to the attic. On the way up to the attic? Omri hadn't thought of that. Will you help me find it? He asked eagerly. Please, it's terribly important. Oh, all right then. The four of them hunted for half an hour. They didn't find it. After that, Gillen and Adil had to go out for some function at school. So Patrick and Omri had the television to themselves. They took out the two men and explained this new magic. And then they all watched together. First came a film about animals, which absolutely transfixed both, both little men. Then a western came on. Omri thought they ought to switch it off, but Boone, in particular, set up such a hullabaloo that eventually Omri said, Oh, all right, just for ten minutes then. Little Bear was seated cross-legged on Omri's knee, while Boone, who had somehow gravitated back to Patrick, preferred to stand in his breast pocket, leaning his elbows along the pocket top with his hat on the back of his head chewing a lump of tobacco he had had on him. Patrick, who'd heard something of cowboys' habits, said, Don't you dare spit. There are no spittins here, you know. Let me listen to him talking, will you? said Boone. I just can't get over how to talk. Before the ten minutes was up, the Indians in the film started getting the worst of it. It was the usual sequence in which the Pioneers' wagons are drawn into a circle and the Indians are galloping around them while the outnumbered men of the wagon train fire muzzle-loaded guns at them through the wagon wheels. Omri could sense Little Bear was getting restive and tense. 
As brave after brave bit the dust, he suddenly leaped to his feet. No good pitchers, he shouted. What you talking about, Indian? Boone yelled tauntingly across the chasm dividing him from Little Bear. That's how it was. My ma and pa was in a fight like that and my whole and my pa told me he done shot near the fifteen twenty of them dirty savages. White men move onto land, use water, kill animals. So what? Let the best man win, and we won. Yippee! He added as another television Indian went down with his horse on top of him. Omri was looking at the screen when it happened. In a lull on the soundtrack, he heard a thin, faint whistling sound and heard Boone grunt. He looked back at Boone swiftly and his blood froze. The cowboy had an arrow sticking out of his chest. For a couple of seconds, he remained upright in Patrick's breast pocket. Then, quite slowly, he fell forward. Omri had often marvelled at the way people in films, particularly girls and women, were given to letting out loud screams at dramatic or awful moments. Now he felt one rise in his own throat and would have let it out if Little Bear had not cried out first. Patrick, who had not noticed anything and missed till now, looked at Little Bear, saw where his bow arm was still pointing and looked down at his own pocket. Over the top of it, Boone hung, head down, as limp as a piece of knotted string. Boone! Boone! No, snapped Henri. Don't touch him. Ignoring Little Bear, who tumbled down his trouser leg to the floor as he moved, Henri very carefully lifted Boone clear between finger and thumb and laid him across the palm of his hand. The cowboy lay face up with the arrow still sticking out of his chest. Is he dead? whispered Patrick in horror. I don't know. Should we take the arrow out? We can't. Little Bear must. With infinite care and slowness, slowness, Omri laid his hand on the carpet. Boone lay perfectly still. With such a tiny body, it was impossible to be sure whether the arrow was stuck in, his, in where his heart was or a little higher up toward the shoulder. The arrow shaft was so fine you could only make it out by the minute cluster of feathers. Little bear, come here. Omri's voice was steely, a voice Mr Johnson himself might have envied. It commanded obedience. Little Bear, scrambling to his feet after his fall, walked unsteadily to Omri's hand. Get up there and see if you've cured him. Without a word, Little Bear climbed onto the edge of Omri's hand and knelt down beside the prostate prostrate Boone. He laid his ear against his chest just below the arrow. He listened, then straightened up, but without looking at either of the boys. Not killed, he said sullenly. Omri felt his breath go out in relief. Take the arrow out, carefully. If he dies now, it'll be doubly your fault. Little Bear put one hand on Boone's chest with his fingers on either side of the arrow and with the other took hold of the shaft where it went into Boone's body. Blood come, needs stuff, up hole. Omri's mother kept boxes of tissues in every room, mainly so nobody would have an excuse to sit sniffling. Patrick jumped up and brought this, tearing off a tiny corner and rolling it into a wad no bigger than a pinhead. Now it's got germs on it from your hand, said Omri. Where's the disinfectant? In the bathroom cupboard. Don't let my mum see you. While Patrick was gone, Omri sat motionless and silent, his eyes fixed on Little Bear, still poised to pull out the arrow. After a very long minute, the Indian muttered something. Omri bent his head low. What? 
little bear, sorry. Omri straightened up, his heart cold and untouched. You'll be a lot sorrier if you don't save him, was all he said. Patrick raced back with the bottle of Listerine. He poured a drop into the lid and dipped a little bowl of tissue into it. Then he held the cap closer to little bear. Go on, ordered Omri ordered. Pull it out. Little bear seemed to brace himself. Then he began to tremble. Little bear, not do. Little bear, not doctor. Get doctor back. He no make wound good. We can't, said Omri shortly. The magic's gone. You must do it. Do it now, little bear. Again the Indian stiffened, closing his hand tightly around the arrow. Slowly and steadily he drew it out and threw it aside. Then, as the blood welled out over Boone's checkered shirt, Little Bear swiftly squeezed the liquid out of the ball of tissue and pressed it against the wound. Use your knife now. Cut the dirty shirt away. Without hesitating, Little Bear obeyed. Boone lay still. His face under its tan had turned ashy grey. We need a bandage, said Patrick. There's nothing we could use, and we can't move him to wrap it around him. We'll have to use a tiny bit of band-aid. Again, Patrick went to the bathroom. Again, Omri, Little Bear and Boone were left alone. Little Bear knelt now with his hands loose on his thighs, his head down. His shoulders rose and fell once. Was he sobbing? With shame or fear? Or could it be sorrow? Patrick returned with a box of band-aids and a pair of nail scissors. He cut a square big enough to cover the whole of Boone's chest and Little Bear stuck it on with great care and even Omri thought tenderness. Now, said Omri, take off your cheese cloak and cover him up warmly. This too, Little Bear did uncomplainingly. We'll take him upstairs and put him to bed, said Omri. Oh gosh, I wish we had that key and I could get that doctor back. As they walked slowly upstairs, he told Patrick about the first World War soldier he'd brought to life to tend, little, to, tend to Little Bear's leg wound. We've got to find that key, said Patrick. We've just got to. Little Bear, still at Boone's side on Omri's hand, said nothing. In Omri's room, Patrick made a bed for the cowboy from a folded handkerchief and another woollen square from Omri's sweater. Omri slipped a bit of thin, stiff card between Boone and his own hand and on this he transferred the wounded man without too much disturbance, which might have, been, which might have started the bleeding again. He was still unconscious. Little Bear silently stood by. Suddenly, he moved. Reaching up, he snatched off his chief's headrest and threw it violently onto the ground. Before Omri could stop him, he began jumping on it, and in a second or two, all the beautiful tall turkey feathers were bent and broken. Leaving it lying there, Little Bear took off across the carpet, running as hard as he could over the deep woolen tufts, stumbling sometimes, but running always, in the direction of the seed box and his home. Patrick moved, but Omri said quietly, Leave him alone. The end of chapter 14.